to make the mind go quiet is get up on a seat and try and think of something wise to say. (laughs) 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 Um. Noticing in the, the chanting this evening, the, we have this refrain, we've been doing it for many, many years, is uh, um, asking forgiveness, Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, then whatever actions by body, speech or mind have been careless or heedless, may uh, try, you know, accept, uh, may these be accepted, I can in future practice with restraint regarding the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. A kind of action of acknowledging the uh, times when uh, when one looks back, we feel have really been very clear or uh, agile or dispassionate or uh, compassionate or spacious or whatever. So a sense of restraint. Check the the reactions. As we get reactive and act or think or speak in reactive ways. Acknowledging the kind of uh, where we can just keep digging these old habits, just keep digging ruts and doing the same thing over and over again through reactions, because reactions are just that, they're not actions, they're reactions, they're things one does again and again and again. And uh, so there's this kind of treadmill quality about it that makes one feel so, so helpless sometimes doing this again, you know, he did it again. Uh, it's reaction. In a way we are trying to cultivate right action, skillful karma, rather than reaction, which is just bringing up or reacting in the same ways. Uh, where we get compulsive or squeezed or uh, fiery or depressed or whatever it is, you find yourself going down these same channels again, these same tracks again. Uh, and uh, in that then we can feel 
very much, oh, this is me, this is the kind of bedrock of what I am. So that's quite a uh, depressing kind of view. And so uh, when we recognize this in terms of practice, say this is something that's our common uh, problem. It's not a statement of what we are, it's a statement of what happens. What happens, because it's what happens, it's something that also could not happen. So the first sense of this is what, what restraint is about, is checking something from happening. This doesn't always go down big, you know, restraint is not a great um, fashionable concept. I don't think it ever was. Because <laughs> I think we mix it up with, with constraint. Constraint is something that we live with a lot of the time. Our lives are very constrained in this highly complex societies, there's not a lot of space, there's not a lot of um, um, time, not a lot of spare time, there's always the next thing, busy, not a lot of physical space, not a lot of tolerance, we have to often have to act in ways that are quite uh, specialized, and uh, success and failure, you know, so there's quite a lot of pressure gets built up in modern life or in urban life. Or <coughs> so we live under these constraints. You feel quite tense and tight trying to get it right all the time. So then we think restraint seems to just kind of tighten up a bit more. Doesn't sound such a good idea. <laughs> It's most we're looking for something like release, you know, relax, release. This is much more attractive to to my way. Relax, release, enjoy, rather than restrain. <laughs> but the restraint is restraint in terms of. Um, coming back to restraint of the patterns, the reactions that keep fixing us and that act as limitations on our freedom. So we're restraining that in order to realize that which is relaxed, at ease, checking the things that tighten us up, wind us up, make us flare or make us sink. So the restraint then is something that actually helps to um, <coughs> check the things that, that uh, constrain us. Restraint is often uh, like external qualities, such as restraint over what one puts someone's mind into, just being a bit more prudent about what we attend to what we think about, what we read or look at. Straighten what we, um, requisites that we use, how much you really want or need, which is practice in its own right, because by and large the world in general is saying you need more, the newer, the better, the faster, the more powerful, exciting, and so forth. 
so just putting that that word as a, as a value word rather than uh, the you know the more the higher the wilder mm. is to kind of check the way that we get uh, used by the commercial material uh, world because it's what it does you know, it eats you up <laughs> we think we're eating it but actually it's the other way around your time gets eaten up your money gets eaten up your energy gets eaten up you know, heart gets eaten up by all this stuff so it's checking that hmm. and then restraint in terms of uh, what we want to bring forth what we act, what we do so there's obviously these things like refraining from killing, harming, stealing, lying, abusing, verbally or sexually, abusing ourselves, intoxication, drugs, messing ourselves up. Amazing mm-hmm. that uh, you know people haven't really caught on to this yet, <laughs> by and large. <laughs> so. You know that maybe if we just stop stop doing all this stuff, we wouldn't have to have so many um, forms of entertainment. You know, we'd feel good in ourselves. We just stop messing ourselves up. But uh, yeah, it doesn't doesn't sell very bananas that that kind of line. So it's something you've actually got to keep kind of applying. Because our minds always can think of the better, the more advanced, the better. I think, well, what about what we what we are, what we've got already? What's wrong with that? Is it really? Is it, and will it anything? You know, will the new thing be actually be better, or just newer, <laughs> different? This is a very powerful habit. And this is monastery. We've been doing this built with monasteries for 25 years or so in Britain. And, you know, it's to actually find that line where, you know, you actually do need to have a roof without holes in it. It's true. You need to get things, these things working. And yet there's a point at which... um, you get into a habit of, of fixing and changing and improving things. Mm. And so the, the actual quality of the life gets lost because we're always busy thinking, figuring, planning, working things out. Mm. It would be better if we just live with what the way it is. Uh, you know, it doesn't look so good, but it, you know, internally. So that, that quality of restraint helps to find the place where we could actually deepen and feel more quality in our life because you can see that the more we go out actually you know it just keeps getting the 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 uh, target goes up and up and up the level of what would be good and happy is continually 
moving upwards. So you never get to the end of it. Thing of beauty is a joy for a fortnight. (laughs) 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 On a good, on a good, you know, if you're really, sometimes less than that actually, a joy for an hour. So this is when you're using restraint, not from some puritanical, you know, tight fear of things, but just what's going to, you know, what's what gives in this this world, you know, what, what is this world about really? Where do you find the the goods, the happiness, the fruitions? This sense of moderation, and then enough, so you can actually let go of that and just turn inwardly. You've got more time, more space, more opportunities to, to develop uh, the mind, the heart, attention, awareness, sensitivity, skills in terms of what we, you know, the energies of the mind, learning to calm, moderate that, brighten it, mm-hmm. clear the doubts or the dullness, restlessness, irritation. Mm-hmm. So then restraint actually becomes the the, uh, the doorway that says, okay, this is change of direction, we move this way. To enter something where we could be free. Is something that uh, you know, certainly I notice in my own life over these, over many years, is as a monk coming up thirty years. I didn't come into this from some religious idea. I never didn't have a religious upbringing, and um, didn't have any religious beliefs. But I knew what uh, suffering, stress, confusion wanting is about. You feel that. And so like most people, you know, when you you're youth you do you move out and you start to explore lots of things. And what's the world about? You know, what's it got what's what's on offer here? What's tasty, what's exciting, what's interesting, what's new? And after about four or five oh, five or six years of that, yeah, okay. And, uh, but then by the time I got to, um, started traveling, by the time I got to Asia, I felt like a kind of, um, an oversaturated sponge. <laughs> you know, it was just too much stuff in my, in my experience to, to process it, just dripping, sodden. There's no room for anything else. Yeah. You know, sit down, somewhere and immediately the inner mind would just start babbling, you know, thinking, fantasizing, dreaming, wondering, wanting this, wanting that. Just, so it was, it was kind of wall-to-wall full, uh, crammed, you know. There was hardly any space to really receive anything anymore. So I, I, as I did the traveling, I'd find it would take less and less time. I'd go to somewhere and within maybe, first of all, within a week, I, I get bored with it. Then it got to within two days. Then it got to within an hour. I'd already, you know, I couldn't take it in. It was like this strange sense of, of 
you look at something, you can't get it because you're already so full up, your senses are so full with uh, the future, the past and so forth. So I just need to squeeze the sponge, you know, to, not because I, you know, out of some aversion, but just so I can to have some freshness in the mind. And that's really why I went to a monastery, a sense of chilling out a bit. Oh, to be glacial by now. <laughs> it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go into perma deep freeze. Uh, but um, just just being in a place where there really wasn't very much um, going on, then. Uh, you know, it's a lot of external restraint, but still, that what that meant was that, that this turning inwards, you come into the, the incredible um, dimensions of memory and thought and emotions and, and wanting and not wanting and so forth, going on all the time, futures and past, and should I be this, should I be that? So it was very full, and, and I mean, kind of, not exactly squeezing the sponge, but letting it evaporate over these last... Uh, um, 25, 30 years, letting it just kind of evaporate. Uh, uh, that's what it tends to do. Now, actually, I don't particularly um, want anything very much. A bit of space, time. Uh, but then, with that, one notice one notices certain pro kind of fundamental, more fundamental uh, hankerings, like I'd, like I'd like to be peaceful forever, you know, for the rest of my life. I'd like things not to happen. I'd like to things to be stable, steady, not be bothered, not get wound up, not have to think, not have to do anything. I'd like to just, you know, like the future to be assured. Just, just uh, I could probably manage gentle tides of adoration coming this way. <laughs> right, it's not too intense. <laughs> and I don't have to do anything back, you know, I'm getting better at that. So that sense of one wants the future you know, to be okay to be fine. I want what's around me to be okay and fine. I want to live in somewhere that's, that's peaceful and happy and calm and bright. And that, that's actually the next level of restraint <laughs> because the, the mind sets up expectations and uh, ideals and assumptions and scenarios of the way it should be. So when we actually, when one starts to enter into the realm of, of mind, we see first of all, if you like, there's the mental content, which you can just by checking and stabilizing, getting into the present and feeling the, the distress of, of the passions or grudges or doubts, and you begin to, to use meditation to clean those out. But underneath that, you've got one has the fundamental structure, not just the content, but the structure, if you like, call it structure. It means fundamental, you know, psychological structure, which means future, you know, what's around me, me. I want me to be good. 
I want what's and me to, for me to be good there's got to be what's around me good and there's got to be a future I'm moving towards happy little me you know that's that's the fundamental structure you know time and space and I'm in it and as I want it to be good or at least not bother me hmm. and if it's just a little bit too much to ask for <laughs> Because I, I noticed this in certainly my own mind and you know, trying to make things right, make things work, make things good, make things okay. And I see it in others around me, and it's a good intention in many ways, you know, one doesn't want to make things bad anyway. But just checking the, the compulsion of that, actually, hmm, how much do I want to effort, it's like, it's like, it's almost like any other form of um, acquisition, you know, building, clothes, how much do I, effort do I want to get, put into making it really good? Because the more I put into that, there's a certain loss of steadiness and calm and okayness in the present, isn't there? That's what you find with any kind of, um, anything that you feed on, anything that you live with, that uh, you know, there's a certain point in which you actually need it to be good enough, and then beyond that, if you you, you find you're starting to lose out because you're putting so much energy into making it better or right, that you lose the quality of freshness or brightness or appreciation. You know, it's like having the perfect garden or the perfect car or anything mm. like that. There's got to be a sign in which it's good enough. Um, and so similarly with the, um, the future, the present, the future, what's around is sort of good enough. Yeah. Is the restraint. Because in practicing Dharma, we're not actually carving out a little oasis somewhere. You know, actually, it, it's, it flows into the world, into our own personal world, into the physical world, into the culture that we're in, we're part of all that. So, and we have to live with a certain amount of things not being the way one wants them to be, feel comfortable with. And instead of the reactions and the uh, the panic the blaming the guilt, the regret so this is a you know, kind of key point in the Buddha's teaching actually recognizing the un- unsatisfactoriness of um, what, what manifests even in the mind, is supposed to be a kind of a blessing. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually get ultimately good. So, oh, then you can 
relax from that or relax from those drives and expectations that are trying to make it um, the, the best. This is very important to, to, to recognize because particularly when you pick up um, a, a kind of any sense of personal development or religious life or spiritual development, then the, you know, you actually, the bar is very high. It's a big, big jump to get over. You want to be Buddha or, you know, peaceful or happy or whatever, have you put it, then it, it, the sky's the limit, really. And so how do we deal with, um, you know, the, the mundane and the ordinary? And this is what restraint is about. So just keeping the expectation, you know, lower, you know, right now. So it, it actually takes us back to the very qualities of Buddha, So we, you know, we like to think of Buddha as the, uh, you know, something that's supreme and uh, uh, that is beautiful Buddha image. But uh, the quality, of, the quality of Buddha is just it's just has no other quality but being awake to the way things are. It's a very much a, but that that means that we, the. The restraint of that is that we normally see things, not actually as they are, but how they impress us, or how they should be, or what they remind us of. So, you know, the specific quality of life is something the Buddhas know. Most of us know what things remind us of, what we fear things might be what we hope things were, would be, what we assume other people think, the, the uh, flavours and colours and uh, innuendos and you know, are happening. Uh, and the mind kind of goes into that and enlarges it because it's seeking that all that territory of the possible and the um, you know, to, to be uh, fulfilling specific things only last are just very momentary and the mind feeds upon the resonances that it picks up from things the memories the impressions the uh, promises of uh, pleasure fulfillment security mm. that's what comforts the normal mind it's like this therefore you can have a good time it's like this therefore things are going to be okay it's like this it's always it's like something something reminds us of somebody says something and it that's the way they always like that so it can be it can also be that a lot of our pain comes from what things remind us of not just the promises but the pain. Someone says something. We hear. It's in. It's. You know. We hear something that represents something within us. It. It. We call it touch. It, it uh, pushes a button. It reignites old karma. 
We see the present, we experience the present, and it touches into something of the past that rises up. Be pleasant? Of course, it can be pleasant. Unfortunately, that same mechanism delivers enormous voltage of pain. So, if we want to uh, find a way out of the pain, there has to be a way of finding a way out of the pleasure, which doesn't sound like a winning ticket, uh, finding a way out of pleasure. But there's another kind of pleasure, which is the pleasure of lightness, just the momentary of of non-attachment, which is what restraint is about. This is what Buddhas have perfected. You can imagine that the historical Buddha living in India, living out on the countryside in India, probably life was very much substandard, I would imagine. No air conditioning, you know, no, you know, no special foods, um, you know, minimal, just walking around, no cars, no transport. Heat, flies, disease, you know, whatever food poor people could give in India, which is not great news. Um, you know, rag, robes. And often people being quite nasty to him, not living with uh, waves of adoration continually breaking over him, probably maybe less than I get. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, uh, uh, people being, you know, some people trying to kill him. His cousin tried to kill him uh, several times. My cousin's never done that to me. (laughs) Uh, You know, so, and yet the Buddha's living happily. He's not walking around getting paranoid, wondering where the next meal is going to come from. Wondering who's going to have to have a difficult, challenging meeting with this evening. You know, some grumpy ascetic who wants to do a number on him. (laughs) You know, or some recalcitrant monk, some miscreant who's done some abomination that he's got to sort out. People complaining. And at the same time, not worrying about, oh, where's this religion going to? Oh, God, what have I started? I, should, I knew I should. I knew I should have shut up and not said anything. <laughs> I was doing all right on my own. I uh, started this teaching thing, and now I've got this responsibility. Oh goodness! No, you just seem to be able to live um, happily in that, and uh, you know that's quite an inspiration, really, because you said the Buddha was taking on enormous uh, responsibility. In, in a, a very little comfort, but through the quality of, of just coming into the specific moment and not hanging on, mm-hmm. not having expectation, not um, you know trying to make things work for the future, not even trying to um, you know have a great mission. He just said you walk around, and if somebody asks you, you can say say what you know. He wasn't going around. Uh, in fact, you're not not supposed to go around just teaching people. So the idea is not to set the world on fire, but actually to put out the fire, to refrain, 
and let that quality of gentleness and peacefulness be its own teaching that one is uh, living in that restraint uh, with happiness and vitality and joy you know, so one of the things to recollect perhaps every day rather than what should I do today is what could I stop doing today maybe not physically what could I stop doing in, in my mind or my attitudes what could, I, could I stop worrying or stop worrying about that one a little bit you know, just go chip down the list of, uh, and see, you know, because you begin to, not just the, the particular content, but it's going to challenge the attitudes that you have to have it all together, all sorted, all fixed. So life becomes a huge project. And I can actually I can say quite honestly that nothing I've ever planned has ever happened. <laughs> Things have happened that have been similar to it, but nothing I've ever worried about has actually ever happened. It takes a while to remember that, to really see that. You can't know the future. And the number of things I've actually kind of psyched myself up for, you know, haven't actually been necessary. The, but the habit is there to be over-prepared. It's like you get yourself all kitted out with psychologically a huge amount of armament and then you find you've actually got to walk on water. and It's actually getting in the way of, uh, of, the, of uh, being able to really handle life. Because... Actually, it's more the case that the lighter we are, the less things rock us around. The less weight you're carrying, the less things rock you around. And to practice the way of Buddha is to practice Dhamma, which means you, you're actually bringing that particular view or that particular point that particular way of being into uh, the, you know, what you are, you know, your thoughts, your speech, your actions, the Eightfold Path. One of the most uh, you know, telling or convincing presentations is meditation itself. And most of us, uh, even though we keep trying to get out of this habit, find that you know the big struggle in meditation is is over over meditating. That is, we try to learn too much, bring too much in, do too much, make it work, uh, control it, um, get quick results, be good at it. Um, yeah. And that uh, tension and willfulness and striving and struggling and doubt and, in, and coming from kind of basic um, lack of confidence, lack of trust is the kind of um, bedrock of all the troubles that we experience in meditation 
So it becomes really ironic when people stagger out of a meditational thing. Oh, I can take a break, you know. <laughs> what, what was the meditation about then? You know? <laughs> I can stop meditating and be, be more peaceful. Yeah. Well, that says something, doesn't it? Admittedly, you know, often when we're meditating, we're dealing. We're actually coming into the place where we're complicated. But then the comp- we don't actually need to be more complicated. The idea is to just a simple, what mindfulness is, just moment at a time, specifically noticing, not creating a lot, specifically just noticing, feeling in the body, without the reactions, without the assumptions, without the, the storyline. Thoughts in the mind, emotions in the heart, without the additions to it, the complexities, the self-descriptions, the descriptions of others. This is what aversion is, or doubt, like this, experiencing it. So you, you really get more fully aware of a specific experience and drop the interpretations. That is a skill. That's the skill of mindfulness, which we develop in meditation. So, what occurs in that, where there isn't that proliferation, there's a quality of space, openness, emptiness. And you begin to sense that, even though this is not so good, you know, the specific moment is, you know, could be better, isn't very good, is mediocre. The less I try to make it another way, the more there's the ability to, to feel, sense, space, awareness itself. Certainly one of the big um, you know, challenges of retreats and solitude and silence is you, you, know, you, you go out there with your little candle and your stick of incense and your Buddha image and your resolutions to you know, into the deathless and so forth. Right, here we go, you know, the big push. Sit there and your mind just starts babbling about some, you know, mediocrity. Not even passionate anymore, just kind of little dribbly thoughts. Who wrote, who wrote um, Wuthering Heights, you know. What, who, what was the, what was the Doris Day's five greatest hits? <laughs> And, you know, this is hardly kind of hand-to-hand wrestling with the, you know, cosmic forces that one was expecting. (laughs) So sometimes even one's defilements let one down. (laughs) It's not having the grandeur or the tragic quality that (laughs) will make it practice seem more significant. But often life is like that. It's dealing with these. Is you know, that's the specific quality of this. Because it's not in that it doesn't have to be that bad either, <laughs> or that good. It's it's the the ability to to let it alone. Mm. Yeah. That's a very profound training. That's restraint. Just letting it alone. Mm. Letting it do it. 
be itself. Now, first, when you think that through, you probably say, oh, that means it will just kind of, everything will go and run wild and be complete. But actually, if you really in, develop and enhance letting it alone, you, you remove the tendencies that keep things going and the mind empties out. And it is a, it's a subtle and a very astute practice. Because it's, you know, in the not leaving alone that I exist. That's where I get built up in my plots and my profile and my life story and my, you know, good, bad, whatever. The restraint is, uh, in meditation, is the development of leaving things alone. One of the ways in which the early Sangha was always described as what people marveled at was that uh, um, these summoners, these recluses, would be living under trees and sleeping on bits of straw. And they uh, say so their countenance was bright, clearly rejoicing. They were very alive. And uh, feeding on nothing. I mean, obviously, they were eating food, but actually, the, the senses were not feeding on anything. And so, you think people couldn't get this. Like, how come, you know, you're not delighting in anything that's seen or heard or touched or tasted or thought? You're not delighting in any of these things, and yet you're delighting. <laughs> you know, this is what was uh, kind of attractive. To, to people because you can you begin to see that if you delight in things that are seen, touched, taste, felt, because those things change, you've got to have another one, another one, another one. That's how it begins, isn't it? That's how it happens. But then you say, okay, you don't delight in these, so that means you're miserable. No, no. <laughs> They're feeding on nothing. It doesn't mean not feeding, We're actually feeding on the emptiness, uh, or the, the signless. Things, when, we, when our, our appetites are quelled, when our expectations drop, when our assumptions and interpretations take rest, everything speaks. Finally, instead of me trying to get it, everything speaks. And that's the delight, the silence speaks. Mm. Awareness speaks, it doesn't say anything. That you feel the quality of presence as it tremendously 
are satisfying. And the degree to which any of us uh, realize this in our moments of our practice when something finally relaxes, lets go, is of course enormously nourishing. But also just to remember this is the image of Sangha. This is, if you like, the icon of, of Sangha is the delight, uh, the fulfillment through not, through not feeding. Mm. This is a kind of possibility. This is what it means for an arahant, to the enlightened one. Or nothing that's seen, heard, touched, tasted, imagined, conceived, planned, projected, uh, prepared for, dreaded, remembered, interpreted. <laughs> because the mind is the greediest of the lot. Yeah. And this is a, to my mind, this is just a wonderful um, possibility. Every day when we go for the arms round in in the in the house, there's a there's a little sign. Uh, some of that uh, one of our supporters did this beautiful needlework of a, of a few lines of scripture, and it says, "Free from possessiveness, one holds nothing and rejects nothing." I always have to stand there every every day for these few moments till the rest of the Sangha come in before I go for the arms round. It's a really nice daily seeing the teacher. Every day I see the teacher. The teacher sits there and this is what he says every day. And every day I think, oh yeah, that's it. And I get in the kitchen, oh yeah, some of that. I'm rejecting nothing. <laughs> Okay, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it does it does get in there over the years. But it's 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 um, you know sometimes we feel that restraint is really primarily external, but the it, the internal the, is the important one. Restraining the mind, then the others fall into place. Once one begins to, um, you know, relax that demand to be something or to be nothing, things begin to quieten and we can feel the fulfillment of a spacious, empty mind. This is the highest restraint, brings the highest blessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.